A captain should go down with his ship. Just three years earlier, everyone knew of the story of Captain E.J. Smith and the way he bravely went down with the Titanic. The disaster was in the minds of everyone in the maritime industry. And though everyone knew the fault of the sinking of the White Star Line ship had rightly been placed at the feet of Smith and his irresponsible decisions to maintain speed, even though he had been warned repeatedly that there were icebergs and heavy pack ice, his death protected his legacy a bit more than had he survived. William Thomas Turner had to have been thinking about Smith as he held onto the sailing lines as he felt the deck of the Lusitania pitch below him. He probably also thought about how the Titanic had two hours and 40-some minutes to sink and that the Lusitania, torpedoed by a German U-boat, foundered in 18 minutes. He thought he had gotten as many people off the boat as possible, but as he clung to an oar, he realized there were still several people on board, civilians, going down with the crown jewel of the Cunard Line, meeting watery deaths. One man put his wife on an elevator thinking she'd get to the deck before him, but she drowned. Turner held on to the ocean for the longest time, living longer than he probably felt he deserved to, when he was eventually rescued. And here's the difference, the heartbreaking difference between the two. Captain E.J. Smith had protection and death. William Turner did not. And what followed would be inquiries and finger-pointing, and what's even worse is that it would not be Turner's last running with the Admiralty or a torpedo. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Welcome to the premiere of our Summer Shipwreck series. We are starting off big with the sinking of the Lusitania. I had someone over on TikTok ask me the other day why I thought the Titanic is the wreck that everyone remembers. That's when I compared it to 9-11. Now, before you stop the podcast, let me explain. Both the Titanic and the September 11th attacks share something in common in the fact that they were mass casualty incidents that changed the landscape of the world. With 9-11 and those crazy few years later and the guy who tried to hide a bomb in his shoes, we had to turn over everything in our pockets to the Transportation Safety Administration and remove our shoes at the airport. If you are younger and that's all you remember, I assure you there was a before and then there was an after. Titanic changed maritime safety laws that still exist to this day. Boat drill on your cruise? Titanic. Enough lifeboats? Titanic. Unblocked passageways in boats? Titanic. They both also occurred prior to the most troubled periods in recent history. In the case of the Titanic, that's the Great War. The wounds of that wreck, though still fresh, have been pushed aside for new fears of the Great War. I've tried to do World War I so many times on my TikTok channel, and it's complicated. So before we get to the ship herself, let's do a short recap from your high school history class. Maine. M-A-I-N. Militarization. Alliances, Imperialism, Nationalism. In 1914, Gavrilo Princep shoots and kills Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie in Sarajevo. The Serbians have been taken over and occupied by the Austro-Hungarian Empire for quite some time. And the thing is, Franz Joseph didn't even really like his nephew that much, but he ran with it. It's important to note that war is started by the Austro-Hungarians, and Germany, who is in an alliance with them, takes up arms. Germany's military is just 
far better than that of Austria-Hungary's. Next, Russia supports the Serbians in that alliance. This brings France into the war because France is in an alliance with Russia. And when Germany violates the neutrality of Belgium, Britain enters the war. World War I changes the landscape and warfare on land with trenches and gas and aviation, the likes no one had ever seen before. And in the water, the German U-boats prowled coastlines trying to make sure that war supplies weren't coming for their enemies at the front. Germany had repeatedly warned the British that should large passenger lines carry military supplies in Irish waters, they would torpedo the boat, even if there were passengers on board. Before the Lusitania set sail, German embassies purchased and published ads in major newspapers. Vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction. Clear as day. But what you will see in response is a bit of British arrogance. They thought the Titanic was unsinkable, and they too also thought that the Lusitania was too big to be taken out by a torpedo. There's also some belief that because the Lusitania is a passenger liner, not a military ship, she will be safe. That seems like basic human decency, but what no one seemed to understand was that basic human decency was going to be thrown out the window during the Great War. This was a war of attrition. And the Germans knew that passengers were not the only precious cargo on the Lusitania. They set sail May 1st, 1915. Now, let's talk about the boat herself, the crown jewel of the Cunard Line. Cunard was one of the major British commercial lines, and they had had over the years an excellent reputation. They owned the Carpathia, whose crew had been heralded for their bravery during the Titanic disaster. The Lusitania was luxurious and fast, and Kaiser Wilhelm himself was so impressed that he reached out to the shipbuilders to order a baker's dozen of the Lusitania for himself. At any rate, Cunard seemed to thumb its nose at the warnings from Germany about Irish waters. On May 6, Captain William Turner walked into an area with passengers on board. It was his third rotation as captain of the Lusitania. He had broken speed records on her. He knew the ship better than anyone. Tomorrow we will enter a zone of war as designated by Germany, he added. And we have received a wireless notice of submarine activity off the coast of Ireland. But we will receive protection from the Royal Navy. Though it caused some nerves, this would not have been news to most people. Cunard's public relations offices had released a response to Germany's warnings. The truth is, they said, the Lusitania is the safest boat on the sea. They said she could outrun any submarine. Now, some passengers would sleep fully clothed in the dining room, afraid of being trapped below decks. Others shook off the warning. Well, after all, William Turner had said they would have the protection of the Royal Navy. May 7th, 1915, 2.10 p.m. U-20, under the command of Walter Schweiger, has been stalking the Lusitania in the fog. 18-year-old lookout Leslie Morton had noted the bubbling lines of the torpedo trailing the ship. He barely had time to put his megaphone to his lips to warn everyone of the incoming explosion on the starboard side. Turner gives the order hard to starboard, the same order William Murdoch gave to avoid the iceberg on the Titanic, just three years earlier. A U-20 officer is watching the impact and notes that it's larger than expected. Schweiger later said this was probably because of coal dust or a secondary explosion with a boiler. This does later lead to some theories that there may have been a second torpedo, but given intercepted communications from Germany, it's likely Schweiger is telling the truth. There's also some confusion about exactly where on starboard the torpedo hits, but right now, it doesn't matter. We have to move. Set your clocks. We only have 18 minutes to get off this ship. 
At impact, the wireless operators of the Lusitania, Robert Leith and David McCormick, began sending out distress calls. McCormick hadn't received an order to send the message, but Leith pointed out, hey, we don't need an order to send out an SOS, let's go. No order would be needed, especially, one would imagine, after being hit by a torpedo. At 2.11 p.m., they send the first message. SOS, 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 come at once. Big list, 10 miles south of Old Kinsel, MFA. At 2.14 p.m., four minutes after the explosion, the electricity is already failing. Leith and McCormick pull out the emergency backup power. At 2.15 p.m., the captain gives the order to abandon the ship. There's chaos and confusion, but the ship in just those few minutes has already listed 15 degrees to starboard. The launching of lifeboats at such a steep turn is causing some of the lifeboats to scrape along the rivets of the ship. There is panic and cries of disbelief. They finally did it. Talking about Germany. There was a mad shuffle to get to the deck to get a boat. The electricity failed quickly, trapping people in the lifts. People were standing in horror, unable to rescue those on the elevators. Those people would drown, slowly and painfully. Charles Laurier, a passenger, saw some people who were wearing their life vest incorrectly. When he reached out to help, he discovered they didn't understand English and they thought he was trying to take the life vest off of them and they ran. Another family he helped sat and waited for instructions. We now only have about ten minutes. Lifeboat 14 is launched, but no one put a plug in the bottom. It sinks. Several people on that one die. Lifeboat 7 is still attached as the ship goes under. Charles Laurier begins yelling at everyone around him to jump into the water. The lifeboat is going to go under with the ship. They try to cut the ropes and Laurier decides to jump. A few others follow his example. Those who don't are dragged down below. Lifeboat 11 spills its passengers into the ocean. This is where a six-year-old girl will be rescued by a war correspondent and placed into Lifeboat 13. Lifeboat 13 will safely launch. Lifeboat 17 capsizes. From starboard, only six lifeboats, number 1, number 11, number 13, number 15, number 19, and 21, are successfully lowered. Alfred Vanderbilt, an American millionaire, gives his life vest to a woman named Alice Middleton. Vanderbilt did not know how to swim. His body was never recovered. We now have about four minutes until ship death. American Isaac Lemon had watched the torpedo approach from the side of the ship, and he had familiarized himself with the lifeboats after the warnings the day before. He had spent all night dressing his clothes, sleeping in them just in case. He couldn't find his life belt, but he grabbed his revolver. He was going to get off this boat one way or the other. On port, he saw lifeboat 16 was gone and looked to lifeboat 18, where people were waiting to be lowered. Lehman yelled at a sailor on deck with an axe who told him the captain said not to launch the boat. Lehman had a perfectly American response, pulling the revolver out and aiming it at the sailor. The sailor took his axe and cut the boat free, but as it went, the Lusitania began to pitch, and the lifeboat smashed into another, killing some women and children on board, so Lehman says. This is kind of disputed by others in testimony. Lehman himself was hurt, but there was a reason the captain had been trying to stagger launching lifeboats. The crew tried to get control of 18 as it lowered down, but all of them were launched into the water. Lehman was trying to hold on to the ship as it turned on its side, and he fell off in the water, flailing. There was a child near him. He and another man tried to save the child by placing it on a piece of furniture, but it didn't work. The child died of exposure. Lehman says he and another man noted that there was a flashing light in the distance. They hoped it was rescue, but after a time, they realized it was most likely the periscope of U-20 watching them all drown. 
Captain Turner turns to his quartermaster on the bridge and tells him to abandon post. That's when Turner pulls himself up the lines to stay on the boat as long as he possibly can. He's on the ship as she begins to founder onto its side, and for a brief moment, it looks as though the kill will be righted. But as the stern rises in the air, Turner is washed off by a wave. The aerials of the ship drag people into its path, pulling it down. A wire grabbed lifeboat 15, but thankfully, the wire snapped before dragging that lifeboat with it. The ship was gone in 18 minutes. There was no sign of rescue. Will Turner's pocket watch stopped at 2.36 and 15 seconds after being waterlogged. And somehow William Turner was still alive, holding on to an oar. The Admiralty received a message at 2.33 p.m. just 20 or so minutes afterwards. Lusitania sunk. Two words. The news eventually makes its way to the American consulate and around town. In the chilly water, which was not as unsurvivable as the North Atlantic had proven for the Titanic passengers, but it still wasn't safe, people were holding on. Where was rescue? Corpses were floating up to the surface of the water. They were only 15 miles off the coast of Ireland, and yet no one was coming for them. The sun was starting to set. Where was rescue? The Admiralty was making a very harsh and controversial move. They didn't know if U-20 was still out in the area, and they didn't want more loss. Some of the lifeboats just decided to start rowing until fishing boats began to appear. A ship called the Wanderer of the Pill pulled in lifeboat 21. And thus began the rescue operations several hours after the sinking. The Wanderer of Pill picked up several and became overcrowded, eventually transferring to the larger boat, the Flying Fish. A woman climbing on board began screaming, Where is my baby? Witnesses noted that one of the officers in a collapsible lifeboat said, We haven't seen a baby. The woman threw herself back into the ocean, hysterical. It was the same officer on that boat that decided to pull her out and to lie to her. No, I saw a baby on another boat. Your baby is on another boat, the man told her. The woman was pulled on board. Meanwhile, Captain William Turner was somehow still alive when the Bluebell arrived and found him in the water. He had stayed on that ship until the ship left him, and he stayed alive for three hours, and he still had a hold of the ship's logbooks and charts. Out of 1,959 passengers and crew, 1,195 were lost. 289 bodies were recovered. 65 of those were never identified. 885 victims were never recovered. The Admiralty realized what a devastating blow this would be. The British government knew they needed a spin and a scapegoat, and when William Turner was rescued, they knew they had their man. Captain Turner was walking in a daze when he made it back to land. A journalist described him as stunned. The reporter, who was a correspondent for a New York paper, told Turner there were a bunch of Americans on board. He said Turner began to tear up and remain silent. Titanic's Captain E.J. Smith had the protection of death. Captain William Thomas Turner did not. That's the difference. As crews worked to recover bodies from the wreckage, the Admiralty was working their next move. On May 10th, there was a mass burial of those who had remained unidentified. 
Richard Webb, the director of the Admiralty Trade Division, circulated a memo claiming that Turner had ignored the warnings and had gone so slowly trying to get out of the area. Oh, he could have gone much faster. Turner had gotten so much speed out of that ship previously. What was he doing? He could have had her out much more quickly. Webb called for Lord Mercy to head up an inquiry. Mercy had headed the Titanic inquiry just a few years earlier. Webb continued to force the blame on Turner, calling him negligent. They needed the spin to hide their own incompetence, to not alienate Germany as the sole offender, and to potentially get the American government involved. Churchill wanted America in the war. The future prime minister was currently serving as first lord of the admiralty at this time. Churchill may have wanted the Americans involved, but Woodrow Wilson and most of the American population didn't want to be involved at all. Members of the U.S. consulate agreed that Turner probably should have gotten out of the area more quickly than he had, but they all noted that the Admiralty did little to warn the ship or protect it. An American attache even noted, I was struck by the fact that the Admiral, while seeming to be desirous of justifying the Admiralty in its measures of protection, did not mention the presence of any destroyers or other naval vessels. The Lusitania had been left out like prey for the U-boats. Where was the protection for the ships that they were likely told they'd have in those waters? The Admiralty had failed in protecting its own liners, and as such it appeared they were spinning the loss and trying to put the blame solely on Turner. In the House of Commons, Winston Churchill had noted that merchant traffic must look after itself. It gets worse when you realize the Admiralty began hiding transcripts of intercepted communications from U-20, including the fact that it had been sunk by one single torpedo. And if you stop right now and look at the time marker on your podcast app, you're going to see that in the time I've started this episode to right here is all the time it took for the Lusitania to sink. Turner had been instructed to zigzag away from a U-boat and that he had failed to comply with Admiralty instructions. They kept hitting the point over and over again. The fault is Turner's. Turner is the scapegoat for our bad decisions. Turner's attorney, however, Butler Aspinall, knew that Lord Mercy was a benevolent and mostly understanding person. Charles Lightoller, Titanic's second officer, had noted so much about him during the British inquiry into the Titanic. He had no patience for smear campaigns. So Aspinall led him with the defense of hindsight is 2020. We have the very great advantage of knowing so much now, which was unknown then. The Admiralty's campaign to blame Turner continued throughout this inquiry, but Mercy called 36 witnesses. And then he released his findings. It was decision time for Captain William Turner. At the request of the Attorney General, part of the evidence in the inquiry was taken in camera. The course was adopted in the public interest. The evidence in question dealt firstly with certain advice given by the Admiralty to navigators generally with reference to precautions to be taken for the purpose of avoiding submarine attacks. And secondly, with information furnished by the Admiralty to Captain Turner individually of submarine dangers likely to be encountered by him during the voyage of the Lusitania. It would defeat the object which the Attorney General had in view if I were to discuss these matters in detail in my report, and I do not propose to do so. 
but it was made abundantly plain to me that the Admiralty had devoted the most anxious care and thought to the questions arising out of the submarine peril, and that they had diligently collected all available information likely to affect the voyage of the Lusitania in this connection. I do not know who the officials were to whom these duties were entrusted, but they deserve the highest praise for the way in which they did their work. Captain Turner was fully advised as the means which, in the view of the Admiralty, were best calculated to avert the perils he was likely to encounter. And in considering the question whether he is to blame for the catastrophe in which his voyage ended, I have to bear this circumstance in mind. It is certain that in some respects Captain Turner did not follow the advice given to him. It may be, though I seriously doubt it, that had he done so, his ship would have reached Liverpool in safety. But the question remains, was his conduct the conduct of negligence or an incompetent man? On this question, I have sought the guidance of my assessors who have rendered me invaluable assistance. And the conclusion at which I have arrived is that blame ought not to be imputed to the captain. The advice given to him, although meant for his most serious and careful consideration, was not intended to deprive him of the right to exercise his skilled judgment in the difficult questions that might arise from time to time in the navigation of his ship. His omission to follow the advice in all respects cannot fairly be attributed either to negligence or incompetence. He exercised his judgment for the best. It was the judgment of a skilled and experienced man, and although others might have acted differently and perhaps more successfully, he ought not, in my opinion, to be blamed. The whole blame for the cruel destruction of life in this catastrophe must rest solely with those who plotted and with those who committed the crime. William Turner was exonerated by Lord Mercy. It was also determined that the attack was not a result of the ship being armed. The Lusitania had no explosives on board. The Germans had just wanted to kill civilians, he reasoned. Mercy had some incorrect notions, thinking the ship may have been hit by two torpedoes, which the Admiralty knew from their intelligence was incorrect, but they never corrected Lord Mercy. They wanted to keep their intelligence, in which they called Room 40, a secret. Mercy was disgusted by this whole thing, and shortly afterwards, he resigned. He only said the Lusitania case was a damned dirty business. Turner would stay a sea captain on the Cunard roster, but the whole incident had been traumatizing. Just as with the Titanic, the ramifications of the Lusitania tragedy would be felt for a long time after. Torpedo boats now accompanied liners with precious cargo. Despite this, so many liners would be lost to torpedoes and sea mines. If Churchill had hoped that the Lusitania would woo Widrow Wilson over to joining the fray, it, it certainly didn't. It did start a campaign of anti-German sentiment in the United States, but Wilson did not want to go to war and neither did most Americans. Although we are frequently taught the Lusitania is one of the reasons we jumped into World War I, it would be the Zimmerman Telegraph interception that would trigger us into action. Wilson once crudely and loudly admitted to being too proud to fight. At any rate, the British government did turn the Lusitania into a narrative of murdered women and children. Germany's Kaiser did issue an order in 1916 forbidding attacks on all commercial liners to avoid any sort of similar backlash. This was after more commercial attacks, including the one against a ship in September of 1915, that was carrying the corpse of a Lusitania victim below deck. If there is one thing that Germany never did well during World War I, it was public relations. And Churchill had that on lockdown. As for Turner, he would be appointed relieving master of the Cunard vessel, the SS Ivernia. It was carrying troops in January 1917, when it was torpedoed off the coast of Greece. 
and once again Turner stayed on the bridge and held on to the very last moment. He had overseen saving those on board, losing only 36 crew members and 84 troops. At the last second, Turner jumped into the water and survived once more. But Turner would never quite recover from the seriousness of the accusations against him, and he lived in seclusion, dying of cancer in 1933. As for Schweiger, of U-20, he would run multiple missions, but would eventually be killed in the line of duty, along with his whole crew in September of 1917, when his U-boat would run into a sea mine. At the end of the day, Churchill once famously stated that the poor babies who perished in the ocean struck a blow at German power more deadly than could have been achieved by the sacrifice of a 100,000 men. He wasn't wrong. But in truth, the British government and Admiralty were so determined to keep their own nose clean that they were ready to throw one of their captains overboard to the court of public opinion. The comparisons to the Titanic are numerous, but there's no doubt that William Thomas Turner likely wished he had had the protection of death from the painful blame his own countrymen tried to lay at his feet. There were multiple suicides and a lot of copious baggage to be dealt with by the survivors. Kennard could only come up with one solution a 25% discount to the Lusitania survivors for the rest of their lives. God's Favorites is written and produced by me, Melissa, and thank you so much for joining our summer shipwreck series. I'm so excited to be doing these. Stay tuned in two weeks when we will be doing The Endurance with Sir Ernest Shackleton. What a survival story. Thanks to everybody who donates to our Patreon, and that allows us to buy books and get behind paywalls and pay for music and streaming costs. Sources for today's episode include Eric Larson's Dead Wake. Please go buy anything Eric Larson writes. It's the best. It's He's he's just incredible. Do it, do it, do it. The transcripts from the Lusitania Inquiry, which are strangely on the Titanic Inquiry's website. Lusitania.net, History.com, Greg King and Penny Wilson's Lusitania, Triumph, Tragedy, and the End of the Edwardian Era. And we will see you all next time, and you can come hang out in the Arctic with the crew of Endurance and Sir Ernest Shackleton, who is definitely one of God's favorites. Can't wait, and we'll see you next time, friends.